Making sure a business thrives is challenging, but sometimes the solution can lie right in the numbers. Uh, specifically, 37,000, 25, and 1. Now, these aren't just figures. They're a gateway to more visibility and decisive control in your business. Let's start with 37,000. That's the amount of businesses who've embraced NetSuite by Oracle, the ultimate cloud financial system revolutionizing accounting, financial management, HR, and beyond. And 25? That's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do everything from accelerating financial closures to slashing operational costs. And every business is unique, making yours the one that matters. NetSuite offers tailored solutions to amplify your key performance indicators, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Ready to optimize? Download NetSuite's coveted KPI checklist, engineered to elevate your performance consistently, absolutely free. Visit netsuite.com slash cbs now. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. Jane Polly is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. We begin with the weather, specifically the temperature. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, says this May saw the third highest global temperatures on record, surpassed only by global temperatures last May and the May before that. Former Vice President Al Gore has been a leading crusader in the battle to reduce the impact of climate change, and he's stepping up his fight as we'll report in our cover story. And it is right to save the future for humanity. It is wrong to pollute this earth and destroy the climate balance. Al Gore is still crusading against global warming with a new film. Those are parts of the glacier just exploding. And an old slideshow. They're calling these rain bombs. We're winning this debate. Uh, we're winning this struggle. We're going to solve the climate crisis. So is this home? Yeah, this is home. Yeah. The climate crusader and there were at home in Tennessee. Around the country. And Ahead. We all thought we were hot shots. And... Seems as if Willie Nelson is forever on the road again, performing his brand of country music like no one else. This morning, the music legend slows down just long enough to talk with our fellow Texan, Bob Schieffer. You know, I just live right up there. Yeah. When Willie Nelson had a party at his Texas ranch a while back, three thousand fans showed up for the music. You think you'll ever retire? What do you want me to quit? All I do is play music and a little golf, and I don't want. <laughs> I don't want to quit either one of those. On the road again. Ahead on Sunday morning, a visit with Willie Nelson before he goes on the road again. Author Linda Fairstein has authored volumes of crime fiction based in fair measure on her many years as a no-nonsense prosecutor herself. In her writing cottage, her cases never seem to end, which is where our Leslie Stahl found her. So this is your oasis, and it's beautiful. Summer on Martha's Vineyard, and Linda Fairstein is busy thinking up the grisly crimes for her books about a New York City prosecutor, a job she held for 30 years. So we've had shootings 
strangling, suffocation, defenestration, going out the window. Poison? Yes, I've done poison. Later on Sunday morning, prosecutor turned novelist Linda Fairstein. A slice of pie equates to a slice of life. At the bake-off, Connor Knighton goes to witness, fork in hand. Every year, the upper crust of the pie community gathers to determine which desserts are the most deserving at the National Pie Championships. But the road to this hotel conference room in Florida begins in home kitchens across the country as bakers test their creations on friends and family. So what do we think? How many first place pies are we looking at here? Seven, probably. Seven, come on, <laughs> seven out of seven, all right. The life of pie, later on Sunday morning. Chip Reed will show us photos unearthed from one of the darkest periods of history. Michelle Miller looks back on the 1967 Detroit riots. Steve Hartman explores the real value of yard work and more. Coming up, it is right to give hope to the future generation. Al Gore, still in the fight. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It was headline news this past week. A huge iceberg, said to be the size of Delaware, broke off from the Antarctic Peninsula. It is one of the largest ever recorded. But scientists differ on whether it can be blamed directly on climate change. Still, former Vice President Al Gore called the floating giant a jarring reminder of why we must solve the climate crisis. Gore has been a crusader on that issue for years now, and he took us back to Tennessee to take stock of the battle in our Sunday morning cover story. Meandering through the rolling green hills of Carthage, Tennessee, is the Caney Fork River, a place where Al Gore seems right at home. This place down here is where, when I was a boy, my family used to come down here to go swimming. Yes, he's the man who was almost president. And yes, that is a pretty tough act to follow. And yet Al Gore has still made his voice heard. And there's an echo here. And not just against those limestone cliffs on the Gore family farm. One time when Winston Churchill lost an election as a young man, one of his friends said, "Uh, Winston, this is a blessing in disguise. And he said, damn good disguise. (laughs) (laughs) So that's sort of the way I feel about it. While I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome. When I went through that experience in the election of 2000 and the Supreme Court decision, I knew I was going to be fine. uh, And I, I hated the result, obviously. But I just started looking for other ways I could be of service. This is uh, the first picture of the Earth from space. So he dusted off an old slideshow that he had once used to convince his colleagues in the House and the Senate that global warming was a provable environmental threat. And in 2006, that wonky slideshow became an Oscar-winning documentary. What thing up there? An inconvenient truth <laughs> made him the face of the climate debate. It helped him win a Nobel Peace Prize, and it put him right back in the political crosshairs. You face some pretty stiff criticism from people that called you everything from a fanatic to a fraud. <laughs> yeah. When I spoke at uh, my father's uh, funeral, 
I quoted a passage from scripture, woe unto him about whom all men say good things. <laughs> if you, if everybody is just completely happy with what you're doing, you may be, you may not be uh, working hard enough to bring about the kind of change that we need. Good morning. Good morning. He's still fighting for change, and he's still giving that slideshow over 100 times a year, if you can believe that. 16 of the 17 hottest years ever measured with instruments have been since the year 2001, and of course it's 2017. It's enough to discourage anyone living anywhere on the planet. But Gore also sounds a hopeful note. He's even humorous at times. The Vatican has made a commitment to be the first carbon neutral nation. Now they have two advantages. They're very small and God is on their side. One, two, three, trees. On this day, it was an audience of about a thousand outside Seattle who lined up not just to hear Gore's presentation, but to learn how to give it themselves. Hi there. Hi. How are you today? You ever get tired of going out and giving the slideshow? Does it ever get old? Uh, honestly, it does not for me because I really have a strong sense that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and that makes me want to do more. He's been holding these climate leadership training sessions for about a decade now to help spread the word about climate change and to engage those who say it simply doesn't exist. The truth about the climate crisis is still inconvenient to the large carbon polluters. And so they want to bob and weave and dodge the truth and pretend like it's still a, a big controversy, and it's not. And it is right to save the future for humanity. It is wrong to pollute this earth and destroy the climate by balance. It is right to give hope to the future generation. The success of his first film led him to take to the big screen again. An inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power, which played at the Cannes Film Festival in May, opens nationwide later this summer. You're a movie star in a lot of respects. Come on. I'm, no, no, you really no, no, are. No, I'm not, it's I'm it's not. you and Wonder Woman this summer. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. For two years, cameras followed Al Gore on his climate crusade. From high above the melting glaciers of Greenland. Those are parts of the glacier just exploding with the high temperatures. To the streets of Miami Beach, where he found officials trying to raise road levels to match the predicted rise in sea levels. Kind of hard to pump the ocean. Why we got to raise above it? It's no longer just the virtually unanimous scientific community telling us we've got to change. Now Mother Nature's entered the debate. Every night now on the television news is like a nature hike through the book of Revelation. People who don't want to use the phrase global warming or climate crisis are saying, wait a minute, something's going on here that's not right. Much of the film takes place at the Paris Climate Conference two years ago, where 196 nations, including the U.S., agreed to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. It is unprecedented. But back home, the political winds were blowing in Donald Trump's direction, and Gore feared it was about to be a whole new world. You've spent half your life in politics, some of it at the, at the highest levels. Second highest level. Second highest level, excuse me, Mr. <laughs> Vice President, that's right. What do you make of this young administration so far? Every day it's another, another set of tweets and another set of controversies, and, and uh, they're not getting anything done. His biggest worry was what might be undone if Mr. Trump kept his campaign promise to pull out of the Paris Accord. 
He tried more than once to change Mr. Trump's mind, even visiting him at Trump Tower before the inauguration. Did you find him receptive, Mr. Trump, to your argument? I found him attentive, uh, and you can misinterpret that for uh, being receptive. But yes, I did think that there was uh, a real chance that he would come to his senses on this. But in June, this happened. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. The president has made this an economic argument that there just isn't room, essentially, in the economy to be sustainable and at the same time provide jobs. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of his base believes that. Well, the business community does not believe that at all. There are now twice as many jobs in the solar industry as in the coal industry. Solar jobs are growing 17 times faster than other jobs in the U.S. 17 times? 17 times faster. It's one of the brightest spots in our economic revival. And never before, he says, have the solutions to climate change, wind, solar, and electric technologies, been as cheap or as readily available. And that has to make your argument easier. Yeah, it's true. I, I look back at where the facts and figures were uh, 10, 11 years ago, and the, the, the curve on uh, solar energy was just beginning to start moving up. Now it's way up here. The entire farm, the barn, the food processing, the house, all of it runs on 100% renewable energy now. His father, Albert Sr., a three-term U.S. senator, once grew tobacco on this farm. Now solar panels sprout out of this Tennessee soil, and so does an organic fruit and vegetable garden. Former Vice President Al Gore. As second acts go, Al Gore found a path that will still Thank land you, him in the history books. Maybe not as a U.S. president. Three, but when it comes to those fighting climate change, he's a world leader nonetheless. I could not lay this down or put it aside even if I wanted to, and I don't want to. Those who feel despair should be of good cheer, as the Bible says, <laughs> have faith, have hope. Uh, we are going to win this. Next, his final journey. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, July 16th, 1999, 18 years ago today. Once again, the Kennedy family is steeling itself tonight to deal with tragedy. The day John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife and sister-in-law, died in the crash of a small plane he was piloting. The only son of our assassinated 35th president, John Kennedy Jr., John John, grew up before the eyes of the world, the crown prince of Camelot. Ladies and gentlemen, meet George. In 1995, he launched a political magazine named for our first president. And there was endless speculation that he might someday run for office himself. Dubbed the sexiest man alive by People magazine. I heard JFK Jr. is coming. Young Kennedy was a tabloid darling, And his 1996 marriage to Carolyn Bissett was the social event of the season. An amateur pilot JFK Jr. took off in a Piper Saratoga on the night of July 16th with his wife Carolyn and sister-in-law Lauren Bissett, bound for Martha's Vineyard. 
The plane was last picked up on radar at 9.39 Friday night, some 17 miles from Martha's Vineyard, consistent with an imminent final approach to the Vineyard Haven Airport. But the plane then disappeared from radar. No emergency declaration was ever made. Five days later, searchers found the wreckage of the plane and the remains of its three passengers on the ocean bottom, about eight miles off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. Their bodies were cremated, their ashes scattered at sea. A private mass was held for Kennedy and his wife in New York City, with President and Mrs. Clinton among the invited guests. Had he lived, the dashing young JFK Jr., so many of us remember, would now be just 56 years old. Ahead, photographs from a lost world. An exhibit of unearthed photographs is offering a heartbreaking glimpse into an unforgivable part of our past. With Chip Reed, We'll uncover it again. Krisha Rosenstein's childhood wasn't as happy as these photos suggest. I have nightmares, and they were always the same. I was flying above the ghetto to save myself like a bird. Always the same. Born during World War II, Krisha spent the first years of her life in a Nazi-controlled ghetto in Łódź, Poland. It was a work camp, but it was slave labor, really. In order uh, to be kept alive, you had to work, and they gave, gave very little rations. There was a lot of hunger. The Łódź ghetto, pronounced Ludge in Yiddish, was one of hundreds of Nazi ghettos across Europe used to separate Jews from the rest of the population. Most residents were sent to concentration camps unless disease or starvation killed them first. Abraham Newman, now 94, is also a survivor from the ghetto. I puzzled what kept me alive. We were a family had Three sisters and two brothers. You are a family of six kids and parents. Nobody survived. When people were taken out of the ghetto and sent to other camps, did people think, well, maybe I'm going to a better place, or did they know what was going to happen? No. The first time when they take you out from the ghetto, you didn't know because we didn't have no newspaper, no radio. We didn't know where we are going and what is going on in the world. Everybody was thinking, maybe a miracle will come. 240,000 Jews were brought into the Woods ghetto. By the time the war ended, fewer than 900 were left. The Woods ghetto is now the subject of a photography exhibit at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. This photograph here is of mass deportation. Kristen Gresh is curator. The photos by a man named Henrik Ross, a Polish Jew who lived inside the ghetto as both prisoner and official photographer. How did he become the official photographer? He had shown up in the ghetto with a camera, and because he had experience in photography, he was named 
one of the official photographers. So his job was to do ID photos and also happy photos to show that life was just perfectly normal in this ghetto. Exactly. And he also was assigned, it seems from his photographs, that he was assigned to do propaganda stories about productivity in the ghetto. But the reality of the ghetto was so horrific, so unfathomable, Ross knew he had to photograph it for the rest of the world to see. He was using his camera as a weapon, as a weapon of resistance, and it was truly an act of resistance to go snap a shot or hide somewhere to take photographs. Was he risking his life by Absolutely. doing this? Absolutely. He was risking his own life, and he was risking his wife's life as well. Ross demonstrated how he hid his camera in this 1979 documentary. Committed to leaving a historical record, Ross eventually put 6,000 negatives in a box and buried them. Because he wasn't sure that he himself was going to survive, and he miraculously was one of the 877 survivors in January 1945 when the Soviets liberated the Wood's ghetto. And then months later, he was able to go retrieve it and literally unearth this box of memories. About 3,000 were destroyed from groundwater, and even some of the 3,000 that we consider survived, some of those are also damaged, and you can see this sort of visceral effect on some of the negatives that we see here in the exhibition. So the, the fact that some of the negatives were partially destroyed kind of adds to the exhibit, really. Absolutely. It feels that the photographs themselves are imbued with the history of what people were living through, so it feels very symbolic. Krisha Rosenstein went to the exhibit to learn what her family lived through. Her mother died shortly after the war, and her father refused to talk about it. Were you reluctant to go at all because of no. the memories that no, it might I wanted, bring about? No. You wanted to know? I wanted to see because my memories are very limited. I don't remember too much. It was very, very emotional, very, very sad. And uh, then we came to the last room, and there was a whole wall of pictures, one after the other. And then a familiar face. My father, my mother, and myself. And I don't have any pictures of my father, my mother, and myself. I didn't have. It was, it was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, unbelievable. It was like a miracle what happened to me. What was going through you when you saw that photo? I, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was so much joy and so much sadness at the same time. On that same wall where Krisha found her family, most faces will go unnamed, but because of Henrik Ross, not forgotten. This is about the autumn of life. Is that hard for you to think about? No. <laughs> still to come, Bob Schieffer chats with Willie Nelson. I woke up still not dead again today. And a slice of life. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's Sunday morning on CBS. 
And here again is Lee Cowan. When it comes to writing crime fiction, there are few who have written as many volumes as Linda Fairstein. She writes what she knows, being a former prosecutor herself, and the crimes just keep on coming, as Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes discovered. Wow. <laughs> Clearly you like to work or maybe need to work in a mess here. Look at this. Did you call it a mess? I did. I called it a total mess. Something said endearingly to my friend, Linda Fairstein, who's into her second act in life as a best-selling author of crime fiction. You know, you wanted to be a, a, a mystery writer, and you are a mystery writer. Who gets to actually have an ambition when they're 10 years old and actually get to live it out? It's uh, just don't give up your dreams, even when people tell you you can't. Uh, if you hang on to it and find a way to come back to it, it's a great joy. She did come back to writing, but after a long detour, she joined the Manhattan District Attorney's Office right out of law school in 1972. You were the sex crime prosecutor in New York City for 30 years. Yes. You saw the most gruesome crimes. Nuns raped. Yes. Little kids who were tortured. It's nothing I set out to do. And I really, terrible word when I say I fell in love with the work. I loved the ability to do something to try and get justice for women who, because of American law, had never been allowed near the courtroom. So it was very richly rewarding most days. And it was very, very dark other days. Tough in the field and in the courtroom. Fairstein was called hell on heels as she took on the whole system that made it nearly impossible to prosecute someone for rape. When I got to the office in 1972, the law was still so archaic that women reporting rape could not testify unless there were three elements of the crime proved by someone else. Someone had to either see the attacker going to the crime scene, witness the crime, um, Who witnesses a rape? And no, then almost nobody. So th there had to be proof of the forcible nature of the attacks. She was a leader in the drive to change this law and others like it. She also pioneered the use the of DNA, of becoming one of the first prosecutors in the country to introduce it in court. How much of an impact did DNA make on your whole area of sex crimes? Revolutionized, revolutionized the criminal justice system, and certainly for sexual assault. Um, if you'd ever told me that science could do better than the best detectives I'd ever worked with, I wouldn't have believed you. But science did do better. This is the left side of his face. There's one deep, severe scratch mark, and there's another long mark here. With the help of DNA, she prosecuted and supervised high-profile cases, like Robert Chambers, the so-called preppy murderer, and the controversial case of the Central Park jogger. Soon, publishers came calling, asking her to write a book about sexual violence. She even became the inspiration for many tough prosecutors on TV, like this one. There were also lacerations to the upper and lower extremities. Objection. Various foreign bodies lodged in her ears. A fractured left femur. Objection. abrasions to the forehead, chin, hands, and knees. That's enough, Miss Cabot. In the mid-1990s, Linda Fairstein decided to go back to her original dream. She asked the DA's office for permission to write crime fiction. And they said, as long as you do it on your own time, 
do it. And the guy kind of brushed me off. He said, lady, everybody thinks they can write a book. <laughs> so. But this lady did. She created a prosecutor, Alex Cooper, just like her, a hell on heels, and wrote five books while she still ran the sex crime unit. She left the DA's office in 2002 and became a full-time prolific novelist. Her latest, Deadfall, is her 19th in the Alex Cooper series. Keep in mind, in 1977, I prosecuted, my first high-profile case was a dentist sexually abusing a patient in the oh, chair. We horned in on Fairstein and her partners in crime, Harlan Coben, Nelson DeMille, and Susan Isaacs at their monthly dinner, a support group of sorts, where successful mystery writers get together and talk shop. I'm a lazy researcher. My research is calling Linda and saying, Linda, Lily, but not, even, not just about legal stuff now. I'm calling her about like airplane repairs. You know, she's an expert. She'll do the research for me. Do you all reach into your personal lives for your characters? A lot of times I don't want to admit it, but a lot of the heroes are me with wish fulfillment. You know, <laughs> might be better at this or better at that, but they're usually me in some in some form. But as I've gotten older, I realize so is the villains, so are the bad guys, so is everybody. Oh, really? Linda's bit. get younger. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Linda's always Linda's younger always and blonder, younger. right? <laughs> is your guy bald? Yeah, no, he's got a full head of hair. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about the wish fulfillment part. I want to ask how you get one book out every year. Linda, why do you do it? Well, I think because so many of the people I read and respect and like, I want those characters back. I want that voice back. And people who come to read your books, they want to see your characters back too. They might go somewhere else if they don't get them in a timely fashion. So this is your oasis, and it's beautiful. It's really an oasis. It's, uh... She spends her summers here on Martha's Vineyard, as does her character, Alex Cooper. This is Fairstein's writing cottage, detached from everything and everyone. So what, you, you'd commute. Have my coffee, I commute down the hill. I commute down you the hill. You come to work. And I come to my office. Oh, look at this. This is wonderful. Your main character, Alexandra Cooper. Is she you? <laughs> well, there was a time when I started writing 19 books ago that we were closer. Um, I certainly did the you right what you do. Oh, and age-wise, <laughs> yes. I've said many times she's younger, thinner, blonder than I am. She's been in 19 books, almost a book a year, and um, she's only aged three years. So that would be a nice trick, right? <laughs> three years and 19 years? Yes. <laughs> she's always reading about crimes, so these are your newspaper clippings. These are clippings. And fills pages of notebooks and sticks on post-its with her brainstorms that are often as dark and grisly as the rapes and murders she used to prosecute. So we've had shootings, uh, strangling, suffocation, defenestration, going out the window. Poison? Yes, I've done poison, I've done a drowning. She always sets her crimes in a New York City landmark, like Grand Central Station, the American Museum of Natural History, Central Park. I thought it would be more interesting for the reader to be in a book where they learn something about a place. And for me, the other half is it, it keeps me very interested. Each book is new. It takes me to a new place to learn something I didn't know before. Cyclorama. She's already researching her next book. And hard to believe, she has started a new series 
This one for young readers 8 to 12, about a Nancy Drew-like young detective, Devlin Quick. And that'll come out once a year as well. You are a full-time writer now. Yes. You're living your dream. Yes, yes. And it, it came true. I pinched myself. It's a dream to, to have a career that I wanted all my life. A slice of pie is a lot more than just a baked blend of crust and filling. It can actually provide a real slice of life. Our Connor Knighton takes a bite. Several, in fact. All I can think about is pie. This is where diets go to die. Blueberry pie. Pecan pie. A room where there is always room for dessert. Don't forget chocolate silk with a glass of milk. It's the 2017 National Pie Championships. Let's hear it for the American pie! This high-stakes, high-calorie competition held in Orlando, Florida, is as American as apple pie. And this year, this woman made the best apple pie in America. From Belleville, Wisconsin, Beth Campbell. I first met Beth Campbell in her kitchen. Oh, oh what's that one? That's the caramel crunch? Caramel, caramel pear, pear crunch. And she was testing yeah. out this year's recipes on her friends and family. If you like key lime, you should have key lime. Yep. If you like Butterfinger, you should have Butterfinger. Yep. If you like pears, you should have pear. Maybe I should try all of them? You I think try. I should try all of them. Yeah. yeah. Beth entered pies in 10 different categories this year. She's racked up so many ribbons over the decades, she's lost track. Last year, you got a second and a third. The year before that, you got a two first and a second. And the year before that, you got two first and a third. I, I don't remember. Are they all cut? Her husband, Charlie, is her biggest fan. And after years of assisting in the kitchen, he started entering some of his own pies. But the one year he took home a ribbon, the drive home didn't go as well. He won. Things happen. And all the way home, he kept driving along. <clears throat> I don't know why you didn't win. I didn't even try with that pie, and I won, and you didn't. <laughs> I wanted to push him out in the foothills of the Carolinas. That's right, the Campbells drive the 22 hours to Florida. It's their only vacation. Each year, they load up the van. Spices, the coloring. They meticulously pack up the kitchen. Good plan. And stuff their coolers with ingredients they're convinced are just better in Wisconsin. Cream, we got the cream. They head south, unload it all at a rental house. Oh, yeah. And spend days baking their way around a new kitchen, which is no cakewalk. Competitor Devin Davis enjoys a bit of a home oven advantage. He grew up just 30 miles away from the competition. I've been cooking since I was five years old, probably. My mom was a nervous wreck. She hated me being in the kitchen. Devin entered his first national pie contest when he was just 14. He won the grand prize. And now, at 21, he competes against the pros. So much fun because pies are simple in concept, but there's so many things you can do with it. You can make them complex. Devin's family is happy to serve as taste testers. Oh, yeah, we need a scorecard. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Y'all should score right on your napkin. But just because something works around the kitchen table 
So what do we think? How many first place pies are we looking at here? Seven, probably. Seven? Come on. One's got to fail, right? Seven out of seven. All right. It doesn't mean it's going to work at the judging table. Front porch lemon truffle blueberry pie. Bite after bite, slice after slice, these palates alone determine the sweet taste of victory. Italian cream blueberry. What are you judging for? What are the well, categories? The taste, the mouthfeel. How does it feel? Mouth, when, what's mouthfeel? Is it too mushy? Are the berries overcooked? How's the crust? Is it soggy? Is it firm? Devin picked up an honorable mention for his chocolate pie. But unless you're a best-in-show winner like Andy Hilton, there's not a lot of money at stake here. Nobody's entering pie contests for the dough. Pie is awesome, pie is just the best. It's all about the camaraderie, the silly apron contest, the chance to hang out with people as devoted to dessert as you are. You know, it's just fun to get together with them and see people and see ideas of what other people came up with. And if you win, that's just frosting on the cake. <laughs> Oh, perhaps <laughs> sugar on the pie. There we go. <laughs> there we That's go. That's right. Everybody loves pie. Thank you, pie fans. Yes. It happened this past week, the 200th anniversary of the birth of the great naturalist and writer Henry David Thoreau, on July 12th, 1817. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, Thoreau wrote in Walden, his account of his two years living in a small cabin beside Walden Pond near Concord, Massachusetts. He wished, Thoreau said, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. His book, as much inward reflection as natural observation, has inspired generations of readers and made Walden Pond a place of pilgrimage that has remarkably survived, more or less, as Thoreau saw it, save for its popularity as a swimming site. Thoreau visited and wrote about other places in New England as well, including the Maine woods and the mighty Mount Katahdin. And he posed questions worth pondering to this very day. It's not enough to be busy, he wrote. So are the ants. The question is, what are we busy about. <laughs> Next. So why so, keep doing this? I just like to see the smile on his face and see him happy doing it. <laughs> Good neighbors. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Say the words yard work, and most kids run and hide. But the boy our Steve Hartman found can't wait to get his hands dirty. Brian Kelly is just five, but he's already missing the old days. He and his dad used to love doing yard work together. Until last May, when his dad, Air Force Captain Dan Kelly, got sent overseas. He said, I have to go now. I'll see you soon. And Brian just started weeping. Brian's mom, Barbara, says it was just a six-month deployment. But it still left Brian aimlessly leaf-blowing in the wind, counting the days till his dad could come back and do yard work with him again. 
Neighbor Dean Cravens used to watch them. He knew the boy missed his dad, but he didn't know how much until he got a knock at the door. Nobody ever comes to our front door, so we're like, okay, who could that be? And you can see him through the window. It's Brian. And I, and I just looked at him, and I could tell he wanted to do yard work. I said, sure, meet me around the garage. We'll get some tools out and go. That was eight weeks ago, and there has been a door knock virtually every day since. Yes, Mr. Brian. He kind of took it upon himself to adopt me to do the yard work. There you go. Cut those off. Which is why today good, good. you'll find this father figure and son puttering around their yards in Belleville, Illinois. There it is. Bagging the clippings and blowing their cares away. By the way, Dean does have a day job, works in IT, and he does have his own family, but he always makes time for Brian. <laughs> Did you do that? Every single day. Has Dean ever sent him back, say, not today? Never. Never? Never. We've been out there for hours at a time. Don't you have other things you should be doing? Uh, probably, yeah. So why so, keep doing this? And I just like to see the smile on his face and see him happy doing it. <laughs> we always talk about supporting the troops. For most of us, it's a commitment that begins and ends at our bumper sticker. But Dean Cravens shows us what it really means to serve those who serve. Brian. He's just there to help Brian get through the days. He's filling in. Absolutely. That's exactly what he's doing. Sometimes yard work grows a lot more than grass. You think you'll ever retire? Oh, I think about it after every tour. Still to come, Willie Nelson and Bob Schieffer together again. You know, I just live right up there. And, yeah. can... and later, Detroit, 50 years on. I'm crazy. Crazy for feeling so lonely. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. That's Willie Nelson singing Crazy, a song he wrote way back in 1961. Its popularity endures to this day, as does Willie, despite the occasional report to the contrary. This morning, two legends, Willie Nelson and our Bob Schieffer, are together again. I woke up still not dead again today. Internet said I had passed away. Now, how in the world did you you come up with that song? Oh, I don't know. I woke up still not dead again today. I've been killed several times throughout the years, and so I just thought I'd write something funny about it. It's easy for Willie Nelson to laugh off the greatly exaggerated rumors of his demise. At 84, he is on the road again, performing writing music. You think you're still a young writer until you look in the mirror. His last album, God's Problem Child, was his 110th, give or take, with songs like Still Not Dead and Old Time. There's a theme here. This is about the autumn of life. Is that hard for you to think about? No. <laughs> no. You remember uh, uh, one of those deep thinkers, a guy named Seneca? You ever hear him? Yeah. He said you should look at death and comedy with the same countenance. And I believe that. The autumn of your life, and I'm right there with you, buddy, 
uh, it's like the springtime in anybody else's life. I mean, you're you're at the the top of your powers, I would say, right now. Everything's you're going writing good. songs. You know, I think age is just a number. It's the way you, you know, I've heard it all my life. It's not how old you are; it's how you feel. And uh, I've been lucky with health-wise and uh, career-wise, everything, and uh, I haven't really got anything to bitch about. <laughs> it wasn't always so. Gee, ain't it funny how time slips away. Early on, Nelson left his native Texas for Nashville. He made a name for himself writing hits for others. Crazy. Like Patsy Cline. Or thinking that my love could hold you. Nashville liked his songs, but his singing, not so much. I heard that you became so dejected at one point that you went out and laid down in the middle of the street hoping that a car would run over. In Nashville. <clears throat> in Nashville. Of course it was midnight and there wasn't a lot of traffic. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no car came No by. car got me though. But uh, what were those days like? Oh, they were wild and crazy, you know. I was going through, you know, one relationship after another, one divorce after another. And those things uh, will make you write songs. If you're a songwriter, that's where you get your material from all your headaches and heartaches. Nelson went back to Texas, changed his look, and changed his tune. Less Grand Ole Opry and more Good Old Boy, spiced with a little hippie and redneck. With his friend Waylon Jennings came a new raw sound. Outlaw country. Through the years, Nelson's music came to transcend genre. He's won eight Grammys and honors he never imagined. Little things I should have said and done. What is it? that sets your songs I apart. I mean, somebody said one time, country music is three chords in the truth. But you were always on my mind. It's three quarters of the way true, you know. Uh, you can have more than three chords. Well, you have a lot more chords. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth matters. When the evening sun goes down. What causes you to come up with these songs that people say, well, that's right. I don't know, I'm just writing what I'm thinking. It's a night life, ain't no good life. But it's my life. If it comes out pretty good, I'll write it down somewhere and come up with a melody to it. But I'm just writing what I'm thinking, it's off the top of my head, really. When he's not traveling on his bus to one of the more than 100 shows he still does every year, Willie splits his time between a home in Maui, where he hangs with friends like Woody Harrelson. Ah, Looky there, that's 20. And his ranch outside Austin, complete with an old west town he named Luck. You know, I just live right up there. And yeah. I can... When we drop by, 3,000 fans fill the town for the Luck reunion, the brainchild of Willie's great niece, Ellie. Running on Tennessee time. 
So what is the Luck Reunion? The Luck Reunion started as a one-day event celebrating singers and songwriters who were kind of forging their path in the same vein as Willie is, just, you know, doing their own thing without compromise. A lot of people get to hear a lot of good music and hang out, have a good time, so it's turned out to be real good. In the twilight glow I see her Things didn't always turn out real good for Willie. In the rain. Back in the 90s, there was the little matter of back taxes he owed Uncle Sam. I got to say, you're the only guitar picker from Abbott, Texas that I ever knew or heard of <laughs> that owed the federal government $32 million. Yeah. That's kind of funny when you think about it. <laughs> well, I'm sure it wasn't funny to you at the time. Uh, he worked it out exactly and paid it off. So why didn't you ever declare bankruptcy? I don't believe in that. You know, I believe if I owe some people some money, I want to pay them. I didn't come here and I ain't leaving, so don't sit around and cry. They just roll me up and smoke this one I die. Nelson's been arrested more than once for possession of marijuana. I want to ask you a little about... Uh, about pot. Uh, you got one? No. <laughs> These days, he's in the cannabis business in places where it's legal. But I it's all going to pot, whether we like it or not. Why have you always been such an advocate? For myself, it's good for me. It keeps me from going off and doing crazy things. I can relax and, and play some music and uh, sit around and visit and act like a grown-up, I think. So, Annie, I've heard Willie say that uh, you married a better man than his other wives. <laughs> no, I did. I, I got him after, after everybody else sort of trained him. Annie Nelson is Willie's fourth wife, but they've been together more than 31 years. What's it like to be married to Willie Nelson? It's not boring. <laughs> it's never boring. He has a lot of energy. It's, is, I think his goal is to... There's 23 years between us, but I think his goal is to wear me out so that we're both the same age. <laughs> <laughs> On the road again, going places that I've never been. You think you'll ever retire? What do you want me to quit? All I do is play music and we'll golf, and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to quit either one of those. On the road again, like a band of gypsies, we go down the highway. For Willie Nelson, the way to stop wearing out is to speed up. Andy Rooney said one time, said, we don't ask to get old, we just get old. Yeah. And then he said, and if you're lucky, you may get old too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to get on the road again. You and I have been pretty lucky. Yeah, we have, very lucky. We're still here. We woke up still not dead again. <laughs> 50 years have passed since the summer of 1967, which saw urban riots in many large cities, including New York, Newark, New Jersey, and Detroit. It is Detroit's violence, however, that is the subject of a new film. Michelle Miller takes us back. Be mindful this story has some language that some may find offensive. In a hundred places, Detroit is afire. One hundred square blocks are now under siege. 
And as you walk through the area, people shout from their homes, watch out for the snipers. It began early one Sunday morning in late July. Police raided an unlicensed bar in a black neighborhood in Detroit. A crowd gathered, tempers flared. This is going to happen all over America. It's going to be a hot world, not a hot summer. It's a hot world. A rock was thrown, and the city became a war zone. Several hundred rounds squeezed off. Now all of a sudden it's silent, tense quiet, everybody looking around. The fires burned for five days. You were patrolling the streets yes. of Detroit yes. in the midst of all of this mayhem. It was unbelievable mayhem. In 1967, Ike McKinnon was one of only 100 black police officers on a force of 5,500 in Detroit. I said, my God, this is happening to my city. The fire has been raging for more than 30 minutes. The people have been evacuated, and yet the firemen are unable to respond. You call this a rebellion, not a riot. Why do you call it a rebellion? In Detroit, it was clear uh, leading up to it and even during it that people were pretty consistent about why they were angry. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Heather Thompson. Black Detroiters in particular were routinely singled out for abuse, for excessive profiling, arrests, really an overall criminalization of black Detroiters that white Detroiters simply didn't experience. Policing was used to, you know, keep white neighborhoods white. Growing up, Ike McKinnon had seen many young black men singled out for abuse at the hands of the police. He was one of them. I was 14 years old and I was beaten up by um, uh, four police officers. They grabbed me, the name calling, they, they proceeded to beat me up. Was this standard operating procedure? This was SOP for these guys. That evening, I made a decision. I was going to become a Detroit police officer. I wanted to make sure that those kinds of things didn't happen to me or to other people. But driving home in 1967 after a long night patrolling Detroit's burning streets, McKinnon's badge and blue uniform offered no protection. Two white officers pulled me over with their guns drawn, and I said, police officer, and smiling as I am, I said, police officer. I had my badge. I stepped out of the car. The older officer with his gun drawn, he said, tonight you're going to die, nigger. This is a cop. This is a police officer. Telling police another officer. police officer, yes. I'm going to kill you. That's right. He said, tonight you're going to die, nigger. I see his finger pulling the trigger. And as I dove back into my car, he started shooting at me. I hit the uh, accelerator with my right hand the, the uh, steering wheel with my left hand, and I drove off as they were shooting at me. What did that tell you? If a person is of that mindset to me, a fellow officer, what the hell is he going to do to the rest of the people in our city? 43 people died during those five days in Detroit. More than 1,000 were injured. 2,000 buildings destroyed. Some 400 families left homeless. The Webb family came back to what was their home on Harrison Street to salvage what did not burn and try to find a reason for last night's destruction. Three teenagers, Carl Cooper, Aubrey Pollard, and Fred Temple were among those who died, shot to death after police raided the Algiers Motel, searching for snipers. These boys were simply caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. What happened that night is the subject of a new film by Academy Award-winning director Catherine Bigelow. It's called Detroit. Chats fire, chats fire, near the Algiers Motel. I never heard of the Algiers Motel or what happened there. Had you? No, 
I had heard of the Detroit riots, but not the Algiers Motel, not this true crime story at the heart of it. Now let's not be stupid in this situation. Seven black men and two white women were severely beaten, but survived. Their stories tell a tale of brutalization and terror. Spending as much time as you can with eyewitness accounts was probably the single most critical element that grounded this piece. You need to tell me where the gun is. Understanding what it would be like to be in that hallway. I need you to survive the night. John Boyega plays Melvin Dismukes, a black security guard who was also at the Algiers that night. You had a knife try to go for my gun. In the case of Desmukes, caught between two worlds, the world of law enforcement and the world of the victim. A revolver. Do you carry a revolver? I do have a 38. You ever shoot anyone? No. Do you think about those young men? I think about it constantly. Desmukes still works as a security guard. To this day, some have not forgiven him for being the face of the law that night. I had to move out of the city because of the threats against me. It's just it's rough. There were threats against you yes, from you know, both sides? I wouldn't, no, I said usually just from one side. Which know, was? The black community. Dismukes was tried for assault in 1968. He was acquitted by an all-white jury. I saw him as a survivor, and yet at the same time, somebody who was deeply wounded by the event. You could see that it broke him in an irrevocable way. Melvin, you want to go home? None of the three white police officers at the Algiers that night were convicted of any wrongdoing. How much do you want the audience to see the collateral damage? These broken men, broken spirits. And broken dialogue, you know, between two very disparate cultures that need to embrace one another. It's naive, perhaps, to say, to think that that's possible, but I, I have to. Fifty years later, the Detroit neighborhoods where the riots raged have still not recovered, though many parts of the city are turning around. Ike McKinnon rose through the ranks to become chief of police in 1994 and served as deputy mayor of Detroit until last year. Where the Algiers Motel once stood, there is now an open field. No plaque marks what happened here. Some say riot, some say rebellion. Some there say will be a marker near so the spot where the riot broke out and a newly rebuilt park. The people have to connect to their history and understand where we've been. For community activist Marlo Studemeyer, coming to terms with what took place here 50 years ago is the only way for the city to heal. If we're really going to move forward, we have to deal with race, we have to deal with neighborhoods, we have to deal with youth, and we have to deal with economic inclusion and opportunity. I think that Detroit is a bellwether city. Historian Heather Thompson. It's every city in some respects, and that's why 67 mattered. It's why it matters that we get it right, what happened. And it's why it matters that we look at Detroit carefully today. I'm Lee Cowan. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. We'll see you again next week. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new? In the news, you know there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out 
What next? 